Hello, agents. This is Empress.com in Scottsdale, Arizona, and you're listening to Podcast 13. So welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. You may have noticed that we have our first $5 Patreon, uh, which means the first guest introduction. So don't forget that if you would like to help support our show and are financially able to do so, you can support at a couple of different levels for awesome, exciting rewards. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash warehouse13pod. That's warehouse13pod. This week, we will be discussing episode 103, titled Magnetism. And here's your summary for the week. Pete and Micah visit a small town to investigate the mysterious connection between a nun, a child, and an older woman's unusual outbursts. Pete and Micah clash over their roles within their still new partnership. Artie and Lena attempt to stop an escalation in the external hack against the warehouse. Perfect. So my writer's note for the week is that we don't have a writer's appreciation corner because the writer of this episode is Jack Kenny, who is the showrunner who we talked about last week. But my one thing that I wanted to point out is that this is his first written by credit in the series. So that is all I have to say. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um- And then on a slightly more serious note, so you've probably already watched the show, but we did want to put in a content warning because this show has themes of both suicide and gun violence, and we will be discussing them. So be warned that that is a topic on this episode. Yes. And with that, I believe we are ready to dive into the show. Yay! Okay, so we start out with one of our lovely Chirons. We're outside the Eiffel Tower and we're in France, which right off the bat, I have questions about. (laughs) This is a government agency. What are their responsibilities and duties in other countries? I'm so confused. This is a new dimension. So yeah, the CIA does stuff abroad and the FBI does stuff in the United States only. And the NSA, I don't know. I don't know what they are. Um, (laughs) The National Security Agency, but I don't know what they are. Uh, The Secret Service, though, is Pete and Micah's cover. Yeah. They are in the Secret Service, but we know, and there's a running joke in the show, that they don't protect the president, which is really like the Secret Service job. They just protect secrets. They just protect secrets, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) Maybe that's why they chose it. So I actually hadn't had that thought because... We do get a a large amount of international intrigue throughout the run of Warehouse 13. So I think it's obvious that these artifacts don't just exist in the United States. And many of them are made by international sources or from other places. So who knows? I will also note that we are at an exhibit called La Morte de Marie Antoinette. (laughs) which, okay, is interesting and exciting. And then the subtitle of that exhibit is Luxury and Terror. That was a good French Revolution sort of uh, set decorating. And then we see Pete doing what I call the Mission Impossible laser thing. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote that and I've never... Don't at me. I've never seen Mission Impossible, <laughs> but I, I know this is a Mission Impossible reference. That's how Mission Impossible it is. It is the stereotypical Mission Impossible. They are in spy mode and Pete is hanging from a pulley system dangly thing. 
And I would like to point out that during this, our color theory is still true. He has like a light and it's purple. And I was like, haha, so far, still correct. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I am also going to point out that with this Mission Impossible setup, we get throughout this episode and very much from this point a bit of a procedural structure. The procedural does make sense right here, though, I think, because they also both want to feel like government agents still. Yeah. They're not 100% sure what they're doing yet. Um, not in a bad way. Like, they're not bad at their jobs, but they're still, you know, finding their footing, which is a large part of what this episode is about. And it's helpful when you're going to lots of different places to have a law enforcement excuse, which is probably why the government recognizes the warehouse as a government agency in the first place. Definitely. And a less thoughtful excuse is that there is an excuse to have them both looking really hot and really cool. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Micah in that leather. Pete also in the all black, like, both of those humans look beautiful and cool and like you are you are ready to watch them solve crime. Micah looked beautiful and cool. Pete just looked beautiful. He did not look cool. He looked like he was making very bad choices. The, he was sticking his hand underneath the blade and like trying to unscrew it. I'm like, what do you what do you think is going to happen when you unscrew it, buddy? It's going to slice your hand off. Well, though, <laughs> here's what I thought is that I thought this was a purposeful subversion like we've talked about where Micah is the brawn oh, because that. she ends up getting into that really cool fight with the security guard. And conversely, Pete, the large heavy man, is the acrobat. <laughs> and I think that uh, another show would have either a woman or a smaller person be hanging from the wires. But it's cool that Pete does it and also cool and logical that he's bad at it. But however bad he is at it, Micah is that many million times better at beating people up. She's so good at it. I wish we had seen more of this French uh, adventure. Yeah, it's great. It's I love that we see this early on in the show, some really beautiful off-screen storytelling. Yeah. Like, we... They have lives outside of the moments we see on the show. So we have a brief... Wait, wait, quick. Uh, another point where our color theory is true is when the blade falls, uh, it explodes orange. So we still have that balance between the purple and the orange. And then we also see at the end of this, P and Micah are arguing a lot. Like it starts off like fun bickering, but it's sort of more serious. Yeah, so they they pull off this mission, but Micah is frustrated and they're arguing in a brother-sister sort of fun way, but it is clear that it could have not gone very well and they're lucky that it, it went okay and they, they got the artifact in the end. Yes, okay, and then we get the zoomy shot into Artie's office. Great, and that's just, we see something is amiss, the computers have found a pattern and... I remember it being very brief. It's like something is up and then my new favorite word, Chiron, we're <laughs> going to Unionville, Colorado. Yes, and we sort of intercut between three stories. The first is a nun and we see people calling her Sister Grace or we hear people calling her Sister Grace. And then we are in a music class with a very talented boy rocking out on a violin 
and then we see a woman an older woman walking somewhere we don't exactly see where yet with an urn yes the old lady is my favorite uh (laughs) because it makes me laugh so hard and maybe i'm just 12. she throws the urn which is really sad we learn that it's her husband has recently died later in the episode but then she gets some (laughs) spray paint and clearly starts writing the f word sci-fi is not likely to give us the whole f word but the old lady clearly writes f u and begins a c and that's (laughs) how you know and uh it just was i think a really good way of showing that this was out of character this was an artifact because i mean i know old ladies who swear and i'm sure some of you have like sailor grandmas um out there but generally that's not what we expect but it gets like progressively more serious the boy destroys his violin he smashes it against a wall which first of all to anyone who's ever done music or any sort of expensive after-school hobby that requires a thing like your parents impress upon you how much you need to take care of that object and how important it is and that they're entrusting you with these things And kids find those items precious because it's something they use to express themselves. And then we get to something truly terrifying and not remotely funny. There's just a smiling woman walking down the street who we know is the nun, Sister Grace. She just jumps off a building. That's serious. It is serious. And I think your way of saying these things get progressively more serious is really smart because actually the first the whole first time I watched this episode and any subsequent times before I talked to today's artifact expert made me a little concerned that some some logic in the storytelling didn't make sense to me because a person taking such a serious action as taking their own life was so much different than a woman being mad at the hospital where her husband died or a a teenager secretly harboring a dislike for his instrument, you know? So as these things happen, the Pete and Micah duo are in the warehouse arguing? Like nonstop. Like funny bickering at first, but then it, it doesn't stop and it's upsetting. And Artie notices... Artie not only notices, but he watches. And I have something to say about this scene because I think it's far more thoughtful than we give it credit for. Artie sees the duo bickering and he's kind of coming on the intercom, telling them to calm down. What's really interesting is that the artifacts in the warehouse like pick up energy and what Artie is telling them is to not express so much negative energy because it will seep its way into the artifacts and we even see them reacting badly which is really interesting and it makes perfect sense based on everything we know about the artifacts they latch onto people and are created because of emotions exactly and it is for that reason not not the interpersonal reason that Artie neutralizes not the artifacts but Pete and Micah with this cool (laughs) pulley system with a shower. So it reminds me of like high school chemistry class. You have your emergency chem shower 
uh, and he he spills that purple goo, and it rains down on them, uh, and it neutralizes the people, which is awesome. What I think is that on a surface level, obviously putting purple goo on two adults makes them stop and regroup and then it's funny and they both have a good sense of humor so they laugh about it but I watched this episode with our artifact expert because she's a friend of mine from uh, the university so when that happened she looked at me and said oh does the purple goo neutralize affects and I was like oh my gosh it does it totally does so if you are unfamiliar with this term affect, it is a much more contemporary term, but it is going to apply throughout the more Victorian uh, themes of emotion and psychotherapy in this episode. But affect is just a word used in academia, including like psychology and theory and history and gender studies and a lot of different humanities fields that tries to theorize the physicality of emotion and this isn't like about being real or not real or science or not science it's just a way of talking about the way that emotions spread from person to person because again whether you believe that scientifically spiritually or something else emotions spread and so thinking of the affect thinking of the physical emotions in a person's body and the fact that the purple goo could actually neutralize their emotions, not just the physical artifacts, but the physical emotions of people was fascinating to me and actually probably true on a deeper level of this yeah, show. Because that's what it does to the artifacts too. Like you see things like Teslas and Farnsworths that aren't dangerous, but they still work. And that tells us that when things get neutralized, they don't stop being artifacts, they become neutral artifacts. So if you introduce them to a negative energy, they're going to become negative artifacts. It's so cool. And so Pete and Micah laughing is because they are covered in slime, like Nickelodeon style, <laughs> and possibly also because they have had their negative emotions neutralized. But on a deeper level, I definitely get why they're arguing. Because it must be really tension-inducing to have such a limited social circle because they can't talk to anyone about what they do, like even less than the Secret Service. They're in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota. There's nothing to do. There's no one to talk to. They're gonna have some issues and some tension. They clearly do have those issues and tension, but also a, a good chemistry in the non-romantic sense in the friendship sense of the word where it's funny when they're covered in purple goo and then they kind of like roughhouse like siblings and in my memory this is where that sort of intro is over and the theme song plays yes it is we go into act two and take it we begin with Artie briefing the team on what's going on in Unionville and they you know, have some questions they want to know if maybe there's any other reason why this could be occurring, but Artie's pretty confident there's an artifact involved. And there is a really funny sort of callback to the diagnostic questions. Oh my where, God, yes. 
they they find the diagnostic questions embarrassing and generally I mean we saw in the pilot they ask the diagnostic questions and they're just generally not actually effective they're embarrassed they said they're embarrassed by them what I love is Artie's response to them being embarrassed which is (laughs) yes my only pleasure left in life is concocting ways to embarrass you (laughs) and this is hilarious because I think there's a really good sense of sarcasm throughout the like sense of humor of this show But I want to call back to Jill saying Artie's so sad because there is something, a a grain of truth in Artie's sarcastic remark, which is that he has no pleasure left in life. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wrote Pete's being sexy because, I mean, let's face it, he is quite attractive without a shirt on. Just throwing that out there. When does he not have a shirt on? (laughs) So... Artie is ranting as Pete is like in a towel and they're walking down the stairs of the BMB and Pete's like, we need to have someone who's in charge in this partnership. This is this can't continue. None of us know what to do. Please just tell us who's in charge. And then like and he as that's happening, he like takes off his towel. He like, I don't know, he's just not wearing a shirt. (laughs) Um, But do you want to know what I wrote down? What? I wrote down instead of that. Do you remember true religion jeans? Micah looks so good in those flat pockets. <laughs> that is the opposite. She is wearing, for the record, true religion jeans with the signature flat pockets. And they look really good. Apparently, I didn't see the scene with Pete at all. <laughs> I uh, wore true religion jeans with the flat pockets today. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. I didn't mean to get off topic. No, I just think that okay. that's really funny. <laughs> um, I agree. They both look quite attractive. Um, Artie says something that bothers me, but I'm not going to get too much into it now because we can talk about it later. Okay. But he tells Pete, just let Micah think that she runs things because she's sensitive. <sighs> I'm rolling my eyes. You can't see it, but that's what I'm doing. I'm sighing heavily, which I hope you can hear because it was intentional. And you know what? We get the same plot against both Pete and Micah. And I would have been, okay, I would have been less upset by it if Artie had said the same exact phrasing to to Micah. But she she gets the word sensitive and Pete gets a different word. So that's not cool. Yes. Also, okay, I guess we'll talk about it now because I do have things to say. Um, I thought I could hold them in, but I can't. They are bursting out. Do it. I think it sucks for women on both levels because women, like the implication is women are sensitive. So we need to let them think they're in charge of things. But really, we all know that men are in charge which is damaging. But then when he's like, obviously, Micah, you're the obvious choice, but just let Pete think he's in charge. That has a different anti-feminist connotation, which is obviously you are better qualified and better for this. And that's that's also not right. I just didn't like that whole situation. I'm rubbing my face in disgust. <laughs> um, yes, I really agree a lot. <laughs> Good talk. Good talk. So before we move on, I know you had a note here about Artie. After he sends Pete and Micah away, he's pretending he got no information from Dickinson's office in the last episode, which I want to point out. He wants to say that he's got it all handled and all under control. 
and I wonder why he would hide that. Well, I wonder if that's a good parallel to men wanting to have it all handled and under control and not letting better qualified women, for example, Lena, could also help Artie actually take control or contribute in a meaningful way. Being that she's an emotion and aura expert, just saying. So once we leave the warehouse, Pete and Micah go to Unionville, where they continue to have a disagreement over which approach to their job is better. I think that, I mean, it's just important that their fight is continuing. And we also know that they're both going to behave possibly less professionally because they have both been turned against each other to like hide that the other one is supposed to think they're in charge. I want to say this. I'm not going to say it, but I, I really want to use a censorship bleep. Meanwhile, the four lady, she smashes a newspaper dispenser thing, like one of those things you see on the sidewalk to get a newspaper out, which is weird. And that stops the argument between Pete and Micah. And they're like, pause, let's follow her. It's like a coffee shop bakery thing with the world's most awful healthcare worker. On the, oh, on the Bluetooth gross. Phone. Yeah. He is being the worst. And I got the idea that he was actually talking about that woman's husband and she she walked up to him doing it. I think he was talking about a similar person because he died long enough ago that there was a funeral. She had the ashes. Oh, that's true. As a healthcare worker, you first of all, like, I get that it's a stressful job and people can be frustrated if they have patients that don't take their advice and then continue to get worse as a result of not taking that advice and everyone deserves to vent even healthcare workers but then for a woman to say my husband just died in a very small voice and i'm not happy with the way that you're talking about this he just shrugs her off and goes whatever lady i'm not working and it's like you're wearing your scrubs you're talking in public like your words affect people no matter where you are. You don't just get to suddenly be a jerk because you're not at work. Yes. What I was thinking when this happens is that the fork lady then smashes his head into the glass. And of course, that is not the appropriate action to take. But even if there wasn't an artifact involved, it makes sense that that was her subconscious desire to do that to him for the way that he was behaving. Yep. We learn from an EMT who shows up, who I call Hot EMT. His name is Ross. Yeah, I, I know. I wrote it down, but I also wrote Hot EMT. <laughs> 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 Micah talks to him while Pete talks to a local cop outside who we learn is the sheriff later. So they're separate. They're not working together, which just makes me uneasy because we know that they're so good when they're a team. Mm -hmm. We learned that the older woman is an eighth grade English teacher who like everybody loves and this is really out of character for her like and that interaction with Pete and Mac is where Pete comes up with the obviously bad cover story God. that he's on his honeymoon in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and then he tries to squeeze in the fudge question, which is hilarious. <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, we're just on our honeymoon. You, didn't, you haven't smelled any fudge lately, have you? And I laughed a lot because I liked that they were still using Artie's questions, <laughs> even though they're embarrassing. Micah then comes out and is understandably upset when she overhears Pete's stupid cover 
and they split up to interview those three people that we have mentioned previously as they investigate this artifact. Yes. But just based on progress so far, Micah's approach is definitely correct and Pete's is definitely not correct. Right. Okay. (laughs) So this is my next point. Then as we move forward, two things happen simultaneously because Pete and Micah have split up. One, Pete's cover plan immediately backfires. Yes. Two, Micah meets Sister Grace. So what I will say is that this is where one of my segments, Heavy Themes, comes in. She goes to learn more about Sister Grace and notices the domestic violence awareness bracelet. Mm-hmm. And they only speak to Sister Grace for a few minutes. And I don't know how I feel about this from a feminist approach. They speak to her for a few minutes and then she gets a little glazed over and isn't really responsive. She She's not well. She thinks she can fly. And that's where Micah and the father step out to have a conversation about Sister Grace's mental illness or what we might at this point interpret as mental health problem without her. Luckily, the father, you know, is conscious of confidentiality and stuff and he just says I can't really get into it but there was a lot of abuse. I think that Pete and Micah are still in the stage right now of seeing how many of these events are related to an artifact and what makes sense. So I think if it is a mental health issue of a woman doing a thing that there were signs for already, should they be investigating this or should they be going in a different direction regarding the artifact? Right. And I guess that is the important information that Micah gathers, but not in the most sensitive of ways where the father says, well, she hasn't jumped off of any other buildings lately, if that's what you mean. Although, again, what the important information is, is that she does not have a history of, I think the word is suicidal ideation. It is. Yeah. And she... I don't think he's trying to be insensitive. I think that he really does care deeply about her. But while they're out of the room talking about her, they have no reason to believe at that time that she is a danger to herself again. But she is acting weird. And so I think that's another reason that they step out is because maybe Mike is like, oh, my presence might not be helpful, thinking that may have made things better. But it doesn't. And she leaves the room without them noticing and goes to the top of the chapel and jumps. Yeah, this is really intense. And I think she continues to claim that it's because she believes that she can fly. She genuinely believes that she can fly. And this is, I think, where I also have some sort of thematic question because Is her actual desire the thing that she's trying to do to fly? If she is a nun and she feels really close to God in heaven, etc., is there actually something that is not, um, you know, suicidal in this action, but is more motivated by something else? First of all, I think the way that domestic violence and abuse can affect your brain is very complex and I really, really want to preface that I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but 
I think a lot of people would think of flying as an ultimate expression of freedom. You're not tethered to anything. And I think that when you are in a very abusive, trapped, helpless place, the idea of being free of something is incredibly comforting. And I wouldn't be surprised if she or a lot of other people in abusive or helpless situations cope mentally by imagining something like flying and wishing they could go and they could do that and I think that she found faith and a desire to become a nun possibly born out of this feeling of helplessness or partially maybe because that's something she always wanted we don't know but I think the idea of ascending to the heavens is very tied in to that same idea of flying so I think that there is a confluence of things that could have happened to make that a thing for her, if that makes sense. It makes so much sense. And your input on the deep complexity of a desire for freedom, I think is exactly what I was missing when I was trying to make sense of it. So that cuts to commercial. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Regarding this commercial break, I would like to point out that there was no outro card or animation of any kind. We didn't get one of the boxes. We didn't get a Farnsworth, which I think really hit home in a visual way, the seriousness. Like they weren't going to have a nun jumping off of the roof of a church and then go out on a cutesy outro card. They were going to keep it serious. And I approve of that choice. And fortunately... After that commercial break, we come back in on a Farnsworth call between Pete and Artie, which reveals that there was a snowbank that saved the nun's life. I think that that was necessary for the episode. Yes, I agree. And I also think that if she did succeed, it would send the wrong message that would equate death to freedom, which it is not. Right. And I I cannot be clear enough for our audience on this. Death is not freedom it is not an answer absolutely and I think it was really important too because it's not that this show never deals with death or self-harm because Mm -hmm. if you recall Professor Marzato had a horrible ending but I think clearly what we see with this is a little bit of sensitivity and we're not going to use this mental health taboo as a device Right. That's, but that's more what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a difference between someone who is clearly not even remotely at all control in control of their themselves lighting themselves on fire, which Professor Marzato did in the first episode, and a person making a choice about something deep within themselves that's buried. Yes. So uh, during this interaction on the Farnsworth, Pete is on the Farnsworth, and then he has to look up to the people around him and say it's a book on tape (laughs) which is a terrible again pete you are bad at cover stories like his desire for improv would make so much more sense if he was any good at it but he's not good at it at all um Meanwhile, on the other end of the phone call, Artie is continuing to struggle with this hacker, um, and he's very determined to stop them. And we just get a couple of cool shots of him attempting to track down this uh, person who he always uses masculine pronouns for. He's like, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to get him. Well, to be fair, he did see a man in that flash 
And the warehouse continues to look cool. It's got a lot of just steampunky gadgets. We see a continued use of this steampunk keyboard, which is really neat. I like it. And I also like during the scene when Artie is really mad about what's happening, he yells at the warehouse. Yes, he does. Then Micah enters the bar and... This is important. The bartender slips Pete a note. Yes, thank you. Micah enters the bar and she has also invited the medic to come in and meet with her to talk further about the issue. Now, Jill has already identified that the medic is very attractive. Pete seems to agree because (laughs) he says, like, be safe, use a condom. And I was like, wow, that was that was too overdone. I would have said it. I would have said that. No, I felt that Micah, do me a favor, be safe, like wink, wink, would have been funny. But like. That was that that was unnecessary. Was that not unnecessary? Okay, so here's the thing. I think it was a really actually interesting and good line to write. And (gasps) the reason for that is if it was just their normal banter, it would have been funny and she would have laughed. But he also knows they're fighting and he knows that going that extra step would also make her angry. So he said it anyway. So in any situation, he would have said it. The reaction would have just been different either time. And he said it clearly to embarrass her, like on purpose. Sure, yes. So Micah begins her interview with the medic, who we immediately learn is married with twins. (laughs) Sorry, Mikes. Quick question. You seem to already know. Is this suggesting that Micah was interested in him? Oh, she was absolutely interested in him, but she's a professional. Yes. So that's what I was thinking is that because she is, her her personality is so professional. Like, yeah, she was attracted to him, but the way that she carries herself around him doesn't suggest that she would have followed through on like dating or hitting on him. But there were so many good both blocking choices from whoever was directing. For those who don't know, blocking is the arrangement of people in a scene. They decide when you should be walking from point A to point B, be at a bar or be at a table. So the blocking choice was have her sit at the bar and be like, what do you want to drink or something like that? And then he says that he is married and has twins and then she moves to a table. It it immediately becomes less casual. Um, but also her acting choices were so brilliant. And it was another one of those moments of just good job. She seems like excited and eager and just ready to move on in some way, even if it's just sharing a drink with a random hot guy. But the second he's like, oh, okay. She just goes, oh, and just, uh, just goes in a different direction. But you can see just that flash of disappointment. Yes. And similarly, as she begins the interview, there's a weird sound effect and a little bit of like a jolt through Ross the hot medic. (laughs) And then he kind of slowly sinks down to stare at Micah's breasts. And like any attraction that was happening is gone and she's just upset. Yes, her facial recognition when she sees him is I think spectacular and realistic. And also there is a moment when she's like, oh, wait a minute, this is part of what's happening. But before she gets to that moment, there is also this other thing that crosses her face and you can tell exactly what she's thinking, which is you just disclosed to me that you're married with children. That makes this 
even grosser. Yeah, it's it's pretty gross. And um, then he he reaches out to touch her, right? Yeah, and she's not having that. She does the best, like secret service hand grab like he he is not going to be successful in any attempt to grope her obviously I don't remember where we cut I don't think we see the reaction just yet but this is where I want to talk about Pete to me it becomes clear that the note the bartender handed him was directions to an AA meeting Mm -hmm. which makes sense because a bartender would know and I want to talk about the character, and then I'll talk a little bit about the actor. I, I'm really excited to talk about that. Yes. Um, and also just a little bit about my real-life experiences. I'm not an alcoholic or a substance abuser, but I have had someone in my life who is and who I love dearly, and as long as I've known them, they've been in recovery, and it's been great. But at one point, this person asked me to go to an AA meeting to support them. And I did, and I highly, highly recommend that if anyone asks you to come with them, you should, and just reserve judgment at the door. It's a lot of people bearing their worst selves in order to get better, so it's important not to judge that. But I also learned, because there's a bit of time before and after a meeting when people can just talk, and this person was just telling me a little bit about how it works, and I also went with this person in a state that this person was not from. They came to visit me and went to a meeting and I was confused because I thought, well, don't you sort of have a community that you go back to every week? And they said, actually, travel can be really difficult. And whenever I go somewhere new, the first thing I do is check my app to see where the local meeting is. And I go to the first one I can find just so I can get my bearings. And it occurs to me that in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota, they probably don't have a lot of AA meetings. He probably has been without help for quite a while, and that's really stressful because an important part of overcoming anything, whether it's a mental health issue or an addiction of some kind, is routine. And if he doesn't have that routine, he's going to get snappy, he's going to act out, his judgment's going to get worse. He needs support. And so I think that this was a beautiful choice and very well written and based on my limited experience of, again, not being a substance abuser of any kind, this was very sensitively written. I felt the exact same thing because when he shows up to the meeting, the guys at the meeting are normal, they're friendly, they're kind, there's a clearly welcoming environment. Pete feels comfortable, the guys are helpful, even though it's very brief. What I love about this is that everything we see about AA is positive, and that's very important media representation. Yes, but now to talk about the actor. I noticed a couple weeks before we started recording any of our episodes, the actual actor, Eddie McClintock, tweeted that he was so proud to be 18 years sober and on the off chance he ever listens to this so we are so proud of you too that's a huge accomplishment we celebrate you eddie that's really hard and really huge yes but in the show which aired 10 years ago pete mentions he's eight years sober which means the sobriety time is on track with his actual sobriety time i just got goosebumps yes and i think that was a beautiful note I would be shocked if the writers didn't consult him about many of the choices that were made in this episode. Um, Or if he was like, hey, 
I happen to be going through this and this is how this would work. Maybe not how you wrote it and they fixed it. In Mm -hmm. any situation, I'm so proud of him that he was able to disclose that to his actual real world employers and that they use that sensitively. But yeah, I think that's a really beautiful, beautiful thing that they did. And I just want to acknowledge all of the very sensitive choices that they made. Absolutely. And I wonder, and I have no way of knowing, but I wonder if Eddie McClintock either reacted to early versions of the character or what, because we have so many stereotypes of him in season one, that he's really good with the ladies, that he's really cool, he wears a leather jacket. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if early versions of Pete were more James Bond, where you know he has a martini and he's doing his secret agent thing. And so... Again, I I don't know, but I would believe absolutely that he either saw a draft that had something like that or before they ever got that far, he told the producers like, I, you know, I am dealing with this and this is important to me. And then they they did something sensitive. Yeah. And I also wouldn't be surprised if this was a reaction to having a character with a drink. And he might have even said, I don't want to pretend to consume liquor because it may be a trigger for me. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it is for everybody, but I definitely think it's a possibility and they just ran with it instead of saying, well, we'll get a different actor then, you know? And that's pretty great. And then something weird happens. I have Micah's response to the the group. Is that... Yeah, you you do that first. So meanwhile, Micah, we get her response to the medic and I believe that the way she responds to him is exactly the way that we should have had some complexity in the pilot because he says he says I swear I'm married you know I would never do this and she while like physically twisting his fingers says I believe you but you better not do it again so great I loved that line it was so great Yeah, her whole ability to interact with a guy who's obviously been whammied but is doing something terrible comes out right. And she immediately gets to work. It's like, I believe you, don't do it again because I am an authority figure. Now, you lost your balance, tell me about that. Yes. She notices, it's the observation skill again and she's so good. And then I wrote, oh no, because something bad happens. With Dave? Yeah, Dave runs out of the AA meeting. Well, so he loses balance in the AA meeting, which we just learned is a sign you got whammied. And he runs to the bar and takes the drink out of someone's hand. And this is potentially incredibly damaging because a lot of times addicts feel like it's out of their control. Like they're they're not making their own choice by doing this. And from what I have learned, and again, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not here to offend anyone. But from what I have learned is part of recovery is recognizing that it's always your choice. And every day you have to choose to not partake of the thing. And whether or not he got whammied, when whatever it is wore off, he would have had to view it as his choice. And in a real world allegory, it would have been his choice. Yeah. And Pete just knocks the drink out of his hand because he knows how upsetting that many years of sobriety lost would be because you just you have to start over from day one and that's why you count every single day and that to me is the most badass thing Pete has ever done yes and he does it again because he grabs the whole bottle yes and you know what I really like is that you hear the bartender yelling but the bartender yells Dave what are you doing he doesn't yell, hey, my glass. Hey, I just lost this whole bottle of liquor. You can, you, you can clearly tell it's a very small town. 
people know each other. The bartender knows where the AA meetings are. He's looking out for these guys. He's not going to serve an alcoholic. Which is so amazing. Yeah. This big crisis with Dave simultaneously with the groping of Micah is where... Where, first of all, Micah is... When Dave comes in, Micah has handcuffed the EMT (laughs) to a pipe in the back, to which she says, thank you. (laughs) which I also loved. I do love this too because when Micah is figuring out what's happening, I love that Ross isn't groping her because he's a pig. He's groping her because his wife is breastfeeding. (laughs) And so I think what's really good about the characterization very briefly of the hot medic Ross is that his subconscious desire is not, and, and we talked about this with our special guest, but it's not Freudian. It's not all about sex. It's about his wife has nice boobs right now, guys. That's all the yeah. thing. He likes them. It is about his wife and <laughs> what he sees every day in his life. Not about wanting to cheat or not about just loving breasts. Yeah. Yeah. It was all great. But when Dave cannot partake in whatever this whammy thing is making him want to drink for, he slips into a coma and becomes unresponsive. And Ross shouts, uncuff me. And Micah's just like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, we got to get him to the hospital. And it was just a very quick series of cuts. And it was a great twist as Dave collapses. And then, okay, before we go to commercial, um, the therapist goes, Ross, we've talked about this. And then Pete says, wait, did both of these, like, did you treat both of them? He's like, I'm not going to tell you about my patients. And he asks about sister grace and the other woman also and we don't get answers about how many people he's seen but we absolutely believe that he he is the source or he has the source artifact in his possession yes and you know what's great is that it's a red herring but the reaction that the therapist has of being offended and not wanting to reveal his patience once we learn that it's not him is still a great reaction because if you are a therapist in a small town, you're not going to disclose your patients. You're not going to out anybody. And you can't. Legally, you can't. Well, of course you can't. But in that bar, it's clearly important and he's still not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the end of the bar scene. And we go out on a Farnsworth. This is where I want to talk about the importance of commercial breaks because this is a really good example of one. And I get a lot of people who hate commercials. They always fast forward through them. I get it. I'm not saying I like commercials, but I do love the break when you wait to get back. And the reason is because the way things are left before we go to a commercial break is a really good indicator of the quality of the writing. This is a great example of a great quality of writing. So there are good act breaks and bad act breaks. An example of a good act break is when something happens and it leaves you thinking, and then what? Bad shows make you feel like, oh goodness, what's gonna happen? But you always know the answer. So an example of a good act break would be a wife walks into her room to find her partner cheating on her with her sister. An example of a bad show act break would be we see a partner cheating and then we see wife's hand on a doorknob. And we know one of two things is going to happen when we get back from that act break. She's going to walk in and see them cheating or she's going to open the door and miraculously because of TV magic, they won't be in the room. They'll have known Hmm. and then it will be resolved. And those are the only really two options. 
when you give us the payoff before the commercial, when you see the cheating before the commercial, that's so much better. Because the answer that you get before a commercial should leave you with a lot more questions that intensify over the course of the break. So here, the answer is the therapist is the connection, or that's what we believe at this moment right now. But when we cut to black, we're left thinking, is it about balance? Is EMT Ross going to slip into a coma next? Why didn't Meg collapse? Does he know he's doing it or is he unaware? Is uh, this a a reversible effect or if they fix everything, are people still going to be dead or in comas? These are all the questions that keep going through our head as we're waiting to come back from a commercial break. And that is a really, really important point about writing that I thought I really, really needed to point out. Thank you so much because, yes, I think that the uh, commercial breaks are great because of the Farnsworths, but also great because they are dramatic and suspenseful. Yeah, and I convince you if you're watching this on Amazon Prime in the U.S. with commercials to let those happen. And I encourage you that if you see a commercial black when you're watching on a DVD to pause and You know, take your bathroom break, make a sandwich, do whatever it is you need to do and let yourself think and enjoy the show because that's part of it. People make TV knowing that there's going to be ad breaks. So they make the ad breaks really, really important. So use it. Yes. Awesome. So when we return from the commercial break is when they are now at a figure skating rink. (laughs) So Jill, tell me your feelings about the figure skating rink. I love figure skating rink i love that micah skates to relax and we just accept this and this is now a thing we know about her she does it to relax and to think yes right yeah which for us as writers and i'm sure everyone will have an equivalent for their passion but like you know you get all your good ideas in the shower or some people get their good ideas while they're knitting like you have some sort of not mundane but some sort of muscle memory activity in which you gain clarity. And for Micah, it's apparently figure skating. (laughs) Yeah, and I do like that even though Pete and Micah are fighting right now, like that's not the kind of thing you disclose to a partner and make him go with you to an ice skating rink. (laughs) Unless there's still a good relationship underneath there, which I also found encouraging. Well, right, and so they've both let each other in a little bit. Because you're human. It just humanizes them and it endears them to us as an audience, I think. Definitely. And while they are on the Farnsworth with Artie, he is pushing them to keep working. He tells them they can do it. And he refers to them as instinct and observation. And he says that's why you were chosen, which I think is real important. Real important and really verbalizing the struggle or tension between the two because as we've seen Pete shows up and he's like why don't we just walk around the town and see uh what strikes us whereas Micah is like why don't we go to the places where we know things are happening and observe and so their different styles are clearly why they were chosen and why they are good together. But initially, because they're so different, they cause some some conflict. Yeah, and they choose to separate because they're fighting, which I immediately was like, this is a terrible idea. And I hadn't mm-hmm. seen this episode before, and I was like, I can tell this is a terrible idea because them splitting up isn't going to solve anything. Nothing's going to get solved until they work through it. And that's how Mm -hmm. I feel, by the way, about everything in life. Like, if there's a problem, Mm -hmm. you need to confront it because ignoring it is just going to make it worse later. 
So in the warehouse, Artie is continuing to pursue the hack. And I will say, and you can tell me what you think, that I felt, according to our color theory, that the lighting was a little orangey as Artie is on that ladder and looking down the rows and trying to figure out what the hacker is doing. While he's doing that, Lena appears amazingly. Yes. We learn that the warehouse itself, or at least its electrical structure, was designed by Edison, Escher, and Tesla. Yeah, I have a few questions. One, Tesla and Edison hated each other, so I don't know how that went. Two, isn't MC Escher like a, an artist? Yes, I think he was also an engineer or something. Actually, let me look this up because he was definitely not just an artist. Okay, but what I do know and what I found fascinating about the immediate reference to MC Escher is the one drawing of his that I know is the hand drawing the hand. But it's, a, it's, it's one of his most famous, I think it's a pencil drawing. Oh, he does the stairs too. Yeah, that I was going to say he also does the stairs. Yeah, so his painting I was thinking of is called Drawing Hands, and it's of a piece of paper with two hands drawing each other, emerging from the paper in a sort of three-dimensional way. And that's what I was thinking of in terms of the structure of the warehouse because his hands are that way, and then his stairs are sort of, I almost want to say like Harry Potter stairs that they are moving around and and kind of doing these feats that defy the laws of physics and that obviously is a logical explanation for inspiration of this what we understand to be massive and extremely complex science fictional warehouse that can do things that don't make sense. Yes he was very important in mathematics research and to the development of science which makes sense given the kind of art he did yes and you know what you may be familiar with this i I, let me get the medium right because i know an artist will be listening to us there is a lithograph by mc escher which is the image i was thinking of of the stairs Mm -hmm. and it's called relativity the title of that painting or excuse me the title of that lithograph is relativity and to me as I didn't know about his history uh, of being related to science and physics and things, it was just a really trippy, amazing work. But the page I just pulled up for it says that it depicts a world in which the laws of gravity do not apply, which allows for a sort of architectural structure that is not actually possible. I do think it's important to note that like Tesla, Escher had some mental health difficulties And I do think that's also interesting just in terms of how the warehouse affects people. So now we know that they've all come into contact with the warehouse in some way. Wow, yes. So after the figure skating thought process, Pete goes to the psychiatrist's office and Artie had actually given them a sort of offhanded comment about a bell earlier. Yes, a bell that makes you laugh to death. Yes, and so Pete sees a bell and it's just like a good follow-up to that joke. Just like a bell that you would have in a doctor's office to get the receptionist's attention. And he just rings it and then you see him kind of just like disappointedly put it back down. (laughs) I guess his thought process was, I mean, I have the bag right here. So like worst case scenario, (laughs) it's just going right on in. But yeah, that was incredibly reckless and hilarious. So then he sees the antique pocket watch clearly in an elaborate display case 
and uh, immediately goes to that. And oh my god, okay, I actually wrote things here because please, yes, the parallels to Artie here are really alarming because he's immediately like, "Why didn't you think to mention this?" And he's like, "Cause I didn't think it was relevant that I collected." antique watches yeah because i'm a normal dude in a small (laughs) town in colorado who collects pocket watches like if you don't live in the warehouse that would never occur to you as significant but that's exactly how Artie thinks he's always annoyed with pete and micah for not like understanding the importance of the fudge question and obviously he has seen things and he knows what he's talking about and you should just know and Pete jumps to those conclusions in the same way and I find it really worrisome because he can go down a really bad path this way. Yes his outburst is comical but the way you have couched it actually makes it a little alarming. A quick chime in from post-production. I really wanted to include this clip from our expert, but I couldn't find a place for it after we introduced her. So right now from a mystery guest, we are going to address the connection that Jill and I made between the antique pocket watch and the media image of a hypnotist holding and swinging a pocket watch in order to hypnotize you. I have never encountered in my studies or research anyone doing that weird pocket watch thing. Um, like no one like gets out a pocket pocket watch and swings it in the research that I've done, but, um, someone could correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know. I I could have just never encountered it. But it does make me like the psychiatrist or psychologist more. I don't know if we're clear on which one he is, but, um, I think that's hilarious that a, a professional therapist would collect pocket watches knowing, of course, the connotations that go into it. And I do want to say that even though Pete continues to be a little bit of a goober going forward in this episode, I will say that since going to the AA meeting, it definitely doesn't have the edge to it that it did at the beginning of the episode. So I do think that that has worked for him. Right. And so Micah is speaking to Father Braid and she sits down in his just the the guest chair it's a pink chair where a person would sit and so we don't think of it as particularly meaningful when Micah takes a seat but they are having a discussion about Sister Grace and Micah grabs on and begins relating to that and then takes it and runs with it and starts talking about how much she hates men and the priest is uncomfortable and I wanted to crawl out of my skin and melt into the floor because I feel her she is such a professional she keeps her emotions inside like even when she's not being closed off like we see her you do have to earn her trust and that's something I super identify with and to just come out and say like your deepest darkest thoughts like that just in front of someone you don't know who you are trying to get professional information from I just I felt so just the most secondhand embarrassment from her I just felt awful but you know what I was thinking was related to but sort of a different perspective on this Micah has been dealing with Pete who she accused of being 10 years old today and she's also had to deal with Ross grabbing her chest today and we already know from the episode just before that she went to her hometown and saw her father which by the way they're in Colorado and we know that her family lives in Colorado so she's in her home state not at home but she's got all of these thoughts and this negative and Artie is just really irrational to her 
and yes. really all over the place. And she came from a place where Dickinson was in charge. And and my point is more that on another day, she might not have had such a, a snowball effect. Yeah. But in this situation, men is the thing that is just driving her crazy right yes. now. And I also just want to say that she was venting to Lena and a lot of people who aren't even academics talk about the Bechdel test, which is, for those who don't know, a show passes that test if there are two women in a scene talking about something other than a man. And the only scene that we've seen between Micah and just another woman on an even keel is her talking to Lena earlier in the episode. She's venting about Pete, and then Lena says, oh, I think he's kind of cute. Which I actually thought was a sort of play on the traditional show because that's usually where you see an obvious sign that the female lead also thinks this person is cute but is going to pretend they don't think that. Whereas Mike is like, that's not the direction I want this conversation to go. I am annoyed. I don't find it cute. I just want us to both be professionals. Yes, passing the Bechdel test is so important. But I also think that in this situation for this episode of this show, I think it's really important that they were not able to pass that test. There weren't enough people around for Micah to have a conversation with that in her life she could pass the Bechdel test. Oh, that's good. So she's frustrated. Yeah, like she just doesn't have women in her life. Even when she was talking to her mother, it was about her dad. She can't stop being around or talking about men. And even when she's just trying to talk about her problems at work and in her life, she's so surrounded by men that those issues are also about men. She's just tired. She just needs a break. Well, thank goodness our next episode introduces a new female character. Yes. (laughs) So that's incredible. I think we should go back to the tense situation yeah she's angry the priest is uncomfortable and then we go to pete in the bar where the tension is rising even more just overall because mac walks by and is all just angry at pete for coming into his town and stirring up trouble and he is associating the arrival of pete and micah with the bad events getting worse which i mean is fair he's upset too and rightfully distrustful because remember pete lied to him in their very first interaction by saying oh i'm on my honeymoon i'm just a joe schmo and that was obviously not the way that a small town like person would want to be treated yeah it's like i'm from a small town i'm not stupid right yeah he's very upset but then micah enters Micah enters, brief interaction. What happens? I've got the artifact. I'm doing so good. You, It's okay. You can just uh, appreciate me because I have saved the day, basically. And it just starts flaunting that he's got the thing. For him, like, he's not doing things with malice anymore. So he thinks he's being fun and goofy and getting back to their old thing. And she, she's not over her side of the issue yet. And she just goes, you're an ass, and punches him <laughs> in the face. And, and you can tell a bystander gets up, and it was sort of, women can definitely abuse men. This is not saying anything to the contrary. But clearly in this small town, this was an unusual occurrence. 
because a, <laughs> a bystander in the back of the bar gets up as if to break up the fight and he's like this isn't the dynamic i was expecting to break up wait who hit who wait what <laughs> and so he just sort of stands there and then i think she hits him again she does so then he says something like ow what's that what are you doing what's that for and then she punches him again <laughs> then mac the sheriff comes over and she punches him so hard that he falls flat on his back which i wrote deserved it which again i don't condone violence but within the world of the show he deserved it because he says hey there little lady don't say that yeah way to address a professional a professional doing her job in the moment when you're addressing her like it's bad in any context but she is a law enforcement professional that outranks you pete gets a mild bloody nose mac gets flat on his back (laughs) now i have two readings of this one is that Pete, we know, is used to getting beat up. He's in a very hands-on, dangerous job even before he joined the warehouse team. But two is that Micah is irritated at Pete, but she is angry at Mac. for Because Pete is being annoying, Mac is being patronizing. So this lets us realize that Pete did not, in fact, have the correct artifact. And also, they've been using this language that she is infected. Yes, I wrote that too. Remember that in the beginning, the first thought was, is it in the water? Is it viral? Is it bacterial? Is it a a disease? And now they believe that she's got it, which is just A, fascinating, and B, going into what I mentioned earlier with affect, like the ways that people think about emotions historically in like Euro-American culture are very, very tied to the way that we also think about disease. So if you're interested in etymology, I'm going to English professor you. I am interested. The word pathology, right, which means the study of disease, is the same root word that we use for empathy and sympathy Mm. and all of those words. So it's the idea that it is a physical thing that you can share with or feel or experience is going to take two different branches in this sort of English language. One is disease and one is emotion. And obviously that's going to tie into the chair and the subconscious desires that we talk about ultimately. So we now know that artifacts can be treated as though they infect people instead of just affect people. We know that not all artifacts affect all people. We know that not all artifacts affect all people the same way now. Yes, that's the big realization. It, it, it isn't in this moment. We have a commercial break. So after the commercial break, Pete has bailed Micah out of jail. And, and she's they're mad leaving. about it. She's so mad. To Micah's character and credit, in her opinion, she is dangerous. Oh, yeah, I get it. And Pete's response is incredible because... It's like, I trust you. I just do. We're going to have to make it work. Yes. And then a few good things happen. Uh, They get a call from Artie and Mm -hmm. they bicker on the call basically about whether or not they should be in jail still or not. And he's like, I'm not going to let you be in jail so you can quietly slip into a coma. Like that's not, we're not talking about this, but she's mad and she wants to protect him. So instead of being at odds with each other about wanting to do different things, now they're 
at odds with each other about how to help each other, which is sweet. But also, mm-hmm. Artie finally yells at them, I mean, about them bickering. They don't need to be handled. They're adults. They don't need to be told to hide their emotions so the other one doesn't get hurt. They need to be told how, just, hey work through it, get it together, do your jobs, which is what he finally says, and then they do. Meanwhile, in the warehouse, the hacker already deduces that this person is trying to find the location of the warehouse by probing the electrical grid. Lena says this person is doing a very good job of causing trouble. So right, they have been bickering, Artie is in the warehouse, we see he's still dealing with that while also talking to Pete and Micah. We go back to Micah and Pete, and Micah, this is cool, attempts to punch Pete again, but he dodges it. And he says, I may have done that on purpose, which I loved. Right. He is getting her to talk about her feelings, which again, we have the subversion where Micah's the brawn and he is the emotional strength. And he's he's like, okay, how were you feeling just then? What were you thinking and feeling when you wanted to hit me? And she was like, you know, I really wanted to hit you. And that's when they realize that the artifact has tapped into one's subconscious desires. And and Pete just immediately accepts it, doesn't get mad, and integrates the information. He just goes, okay, you you subconsciously want to hit me every five seconds. Understood? Moving on. (laughs) And, you know, I think that that is a clear recognition that she does put up with a lot of crap. And that their job is hard and stressful and he probably is self-aware of his own personality. (laughs) Yeah, and like we get the idea that he understands he's been pushing it and now knows which mood to read from her to realize when to pull back, which Mm -hmm. is really important. And then he's just like, okay, time to do our jobs, time to figure out what other people's subconscious is doing, which I think also ties in really importantly to the situation with the nun earlier. Yes. And so not only do they realize how the artifact is having all of these diverse effects, but they go through very quickly, where have you been? Where have I been? And conclude by looking over to the church service that the victims all attended the same church and that's where they rush in to consult Father Braid and try to figure out what the actual artifact is. And I would say that I love this reveal because they come in, they're really frantic, they're asking Father Braid and then <laughs> they say, you know, where where do your um, practitioners sit? And they look over and there's this very brief but brilliant sort of horror angle. <laughs> they look down on the chair. There's a scary sound effect. And then the next cut is like a shaky cam from behind the chair with the just the corner of the chair suspiciously in frame. And it's just really brief, but... It's their fear that is seeping into us as a viewer. And they would have done that to me if I wasn't so familiar with filmic language. But for me, I just registered that that's what was happening and then immediately zoned in on Father Braid because (laughs) he sees the Farnsworth because they're not even trying to hide what it is. They're just talking to Artie (laughs) on the Farnsworth being like, we think we found the thing. And you just hear him go, what's that? And then the whole rest of the time they're talking, he's like registering that something important is happening, but also standing directly behind Pete and Micah looking at the Farnsworth. (laughs) And he's just like, what? (laughs) And like, good acting, sir. (laughs) 
truly, though, it was because it was that reacting thing. He saw a thing and was like, wait, just a minute. And I also think that he's alarmed by what is happening, but he is a man of faith and he does accept that there are things larger than him and that he can't control. So he's not like, don't destroy this chair. He's like, my chair? Really? This is interesting. Well, I love this. So they point the Farnsworth at the chair and Pete and Micah are like, where did you get this? What is? And he's like, I inherited it from my great great. And they're like, ah, that's enough. <laughs> they're like, we get it. This is it. It's old. <laughs> it's funny because we saw Pete do the exact same thing earlier and fail. And so now they're going to do it again and be right. Because they're doing it together. That's the difference. Ooh, you're right. Yes. And they are. Yeah, they're a successful team. And as it's all again, just sort of a technobabble climactic explanation. But there are these beautiful details that a thoughtful viewer may be asking where Artie on the Farnsworth begins describing, okay, I've looked him up. Father Braid is a direct descendant. He just took ownership of the chair, which would explain why it hasn't been wreaking havoc in Colorado for 200 years. And It's also this long explanation of this direct descendant has the same vocal patterns. There is clearly a specific situation and emotion that is causing the artifact to be activated. And he even uses this beautiful bit of language, which is not really technobabble, but real, um, that the springs in the chair have become ferromagnetized, which just means they're susceptible to magnetism and they can easily get magnetized again because of their past. Um, And this totally fits into all of the discussions that we have with our artifact expert for this week um, because it's all about the physicality of energy and magnetism, which obviously is also the title of the episode. Our guest this week was my colleague at the University of California, Riverside. Cameron Sanzo formerly worked as a mechanical engineer and is currently a PhD student in English. She studies Victorian literature as it relates to the history of science, particularly physics. Her dissertation researches what 19th century telegraphic infrastructure can reveal about the historical narrative of electromagnetic field theory. She is an expert on energy, imponderables, and mesmerism. Literally the perfect person for this episode. Let's go ahead and listen to our first clip where Cameron explains to us the concepts that are necessary to understand this artifact. So she's going to begin by talking about imponderable fluid. And the reason that that's so relevant is because of the title magnetism and how that relates to the history of science, specifically in the 19th century, regarding energy and magnetism and those imponderable forces, those unseen forces. So let's take a listen. Um, Mesmerism dates back to the late 18th century when Anton Mesmer, who was a German doctor, started to think about the ways in which magnets interact and how they sort of push or pull against one another. And because, as I mentioned before, it was sort of understood that heat, light, electricity, magnetism operated via some kind of um, invisible or imponderable fluid, he started to think about, oh, well, maybe um, humans are also in flux with a fluid all around us too. So he called that fluid animal magnetism. Um, so what he did, and this is, this is where the word mesmerism comes from, is he started to treat patients based on these principles and he would try to balance the fluid in and through their bodies and try to figure out 
what was going awry inside their bodies. It's sort of like Reiki now. So he would like move his hands across their bodies, have them go into a trance state. And then ideally they would reach a sort of crisis state where um, they would have like a, a hysterical fit or they would like purge or something like that. And then the fluid would be balanced and then they would be better. Probably what the episode is concerned with is James Braid. And James Braid is, as the episode uh, indicates, the father of hypnotherapy. And what hypnosis started out as, um, it started out as a sort of branch of mesmerism. James Braid went to a mesmeric demonstration I believe it was in 1841, but it was definitely on November 13th. Um, yeah, so he went to one of these demonstrations and he was completely convinced that these people were in a trance. 100% convinced. What he was not convinced about was that there was an imponderable fluid, like an actual material fluid in between the two bodies or however many bodies were interacting. So what he hypothesized instead was that what's going on, in fact, is that there is a psychosomatic reaction going on whereby the magnetizer or the doctor gives the patient a suggestion, like you're going to sleep now or whatever. And then the patient sort of convinces himself or her, herself that they're going to, to do that thing, right? That their body's gonna go into a trance and then the body truly does go into a trance, right? Down the line, that kind of turned into not so much therapy for treating physical ailments, but for treating psychological ailments. And so I think that's kind of the gesture that the episode is making. So that animal magnetism is our magnetic connection thematically. So I asked Cameron if she could elaborate on the imponderable fluids and the relationship that that plays in understanding magnetism and other imponderable forces. Let's see if this metaphor of imponderable fluids might be helpful. Huh, okay, so imponderable fluids sort of preceded the discourse of energy, right? So maybe we can think about, about it as like a literalization or a materialization of how we today think about how energy gets transferred from one object to another or from one type to another. It's sort of thinking about how forces act on each other at a distance. And because they didn't have a way of explaining that other than there is a fluid we can't see that is causing objects to act on each other at a distance like that imponderable fluids is like how they they, they routed those questions through imponderability this also ties back into the spiritualism of the previous episode because they're so similar of early mesmerism and spiritualism were sort of the same type of experience on the outsider looking in at it Mm -hmm. The scientific method was still being developed into what we know it as today. And so all you really had for both of those things was this sort of anecdotal observation, but not in any sort of structured, replicable thing. And it's interesting to me now that spiritualism, we sort of scoff at and are like, Ugh, people believe that. 
but hypnotism is still very much a thing that has evolved past that and grown into something else. Well, right. And this would be a great place to have the question I asked Cameron about mesmerism specifically, which, you know, is it real? Yeah, that's obviously a very difficult question to answer. For me, it doesn't matter. I don't really care. I mean, no, I don't believe in mesmerism. I don't think it's real. But like, to me, the interesting question is not whether or not it's real, but like how questions of authenticity and credibility are being created at a time when science and laboratory science is also being created in the 19th century, right? Like, how do we study an object that cannot be seen? So, to paraphrase one of my favorite songs, f***ing magnets, how do they work? <laughs> the Victorians, that's not my favorite song, but the Victorians are, at, they're looking at magnets, they're looking at energy, they are trying to figure out how stuff works, and they come up with these explanations like, oh, there must be fluid in the body that is magnetic in some way there must be they're just theorizing energy is what Cameron says and they maybe weren't correct but they tried yes so here are my other two notes and the one is going back to the heavy themes discussion with sister grace because I could not figure out why it was so important to have her self-harming and then we we know we want her to survive for important reasons but it is really useful to hear Cameron's explanation of the demonstrations proving that mesmerism air quote existed so when people were mesmerized it was understood that they were in a trance of some sort but because the like the fluid the ostensible fluid that was causing them to go into a trance was not able to be seen because it was what was called an imponderable fluid um, because you couldn't see it it was sort of like a specious thing to some people that like how do we know that these people aren't faking so um what these demonstrations would sometimes do is they would like stick needles in people's eyes or like shout in people's ears or like stick needles under their skin or like fingernails and because the patient like apparently would not react <laughs> um, there are many 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 cases um, written down where people would just not react and would just remain completely placid during these like tortures and then would not be hurt afterwards that was supposedly evidence that like they were indeed in some kind of trance state so when we were watching, I, I tweeted this, um, but when Cameron and I were watching and Sister Grace jumped for the second time, Cameron said, where did I write it down? She said, see, when they're under the trance, you can stick needles in their eyes and shit, you know? <laughs> and it was like, oh, to a person who studies mesmerism, it makes sense that they are going to do painful things and survive because that is the history of mesmerism. Yeah. Well, and so there is a similar history of science thing that was my only other point to bring up with Cameron is that one thing I questioned as a, an expert in the late 19th century is that they're using Freudian terms and thought processes when they talk about the subconscious. Obviously, Freud is not going to create that way of thinking until later in the 19th century. When mesmerism comes to London and also America, when it becomes a sort of transatlantic phenomenon, 
that's definitely like the 1830s, 1840s. And by the time it's discredited, that's still like 1850s, 1860s. It's pre-Freud. Probably that's dabbling too much into the language of the subconscious and like the unconscious and things that Freud would do that probably is not a great historicization of what actually <laughs> happened. If the chair made it through like several generations of braids, they would have seen Freud and it would have seen like how culture changed, right? So that's actually really point. good. Yeah. And so Pete and Micah live in the 21st century where we have an understanding of the subconscious, even though these particular historical springs from James Braid's chair are from the 1840s. I love the quote of Cameron saying, well, that chair would have seen generations of braids. It would have gone through the whole history of psychoanalysis. And so that was really helpful to me. So do we have any other comments about mesmerism before we round out the end of the climax? No, because I want to talk about Things escalate real fast. So this goes into our second section of heavy themes. Oh boy, yeah. So while they're figuring out what's going on, there are screams in the chapel or I don't know, use church terms. I don't know them. Chapel is fine. (laughs) I'm Jewish and don't know. Um, I try. (laughs) (laughs) I actually am a witch. It's fine. (laughs) Please keep that in. Um, Yeah, but... Man, we just distracted ourselves so we didn't have to talk about this, but I'm just going to reiterate the content warning that the sheriff is in the church. He's definitely under the influence of whatever the artifact is doing to him, and he now believes everyone's a threat, which I definitely understand. He's got these new people in town, but also people in his town are acting really weird. No, No one is acting the way he expects them to act. And he also says something along the lines of, I'll do whatever it takes to protect my country. Not my town, my country. He says that to Pete earlier. And when you think this came out in 2009, he's a sheriff. He's been in law enforcement for a long time. People from all over the United States sent first responders to New York for 9-11. And then they sent first responders in, I want to say 2005, you can fact check me on that, to New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I mean, not too long after 9-11. So he is a law enforcement officer in a very difficult time for America. And I'm sure that's taken a toll on him. And he wants to protect the place that he calls home. So that definitely affected something in him, which he responded to in the worst possible way. Because as we talked about with Sister Grace, self-harm is terrible. Suicidal ideation is terrible. Please seek help if you're dealing with those issues. But externalizing it and putting it on other people is also terrible and I don't even know what to say about it other than everyone knows immediately how terrible it is um he sees Pete and Micah and blames them the priest tries to sort of de-escalate the situation and he just shoots the priest which is awful this is the worst part to me and all of it is really bad but immediately Okay, there's gun violence in a place of worship, which is really tough. Yeah. It's also a lived reality in this country that gun violence in places of worship happens because a very incorrect person 
is placing blame on someone who is not to blame for whatever societal ill that they believe is occurring. And this is like such a good priest. Not that I'm saying if he was a bad priest, he would deserve this because I'm definitely not saying that. But he is so willing and supportive of providing help to whoever he can spiritually or otherwise he says regarding sister grace he advised her to go and seek help yeah to see a a psychologist which is really important that he is a person of faith that also is believing in modern medicine and really doing the most that you can to help people he supports the good works that the nuns do by going out and supporting victims of domestic violence in these really feminist and scientifically progressive ways that such a character wouldn't necessarily have to be written that way, you know? Yeah. And But this is just a good man, and he's so willing to help Micah and Pete and just roll with the punches. And all he wants to do, just like the sheriff, is help his town. And he stands up and immediately gets shot. Luckily, we know it's just in the shoulder, so he survives. But that was actually really heartbreaking to watch. Luckily, he's shot in the shoulder, and luckily, Ross the medic is in the church. And so we know, first of all, it is a survivable wound. Not that that makes getting shot unpainful. Especially for, like, a white-haired, like, older man. Like, that sucks. And luckily, also, remember, we saw, which I don't know if this is a continuity error or what, we saw Ross with his wife and a stroller And your first thought, Jill, I'm sure, was, where are the children? Yeah. And the medic Ross in a kind of barely, barely audible line, where's, what's her name and the kids? And uh, he says, don't worry, they're outside. And he continues to help father uh, Braid, which is really important. Although I will say two other things that are really complicated One is that we do see a family with a child cowering like near the pulpit, which is really difficult and not okay. And it was very brief, but they were a family of color. Mac is a person of color. There's a family of color cowering at the pulpit. And then there is a couple where both partners are people of color in the pews cowering. And so... Um, it's, it's complicated because there are also white people in the church and it is clearly not a racially motivated crime in this TV show, but we have to think about that when we think about, again, violence in places of worship, Mm -hmm. regardless of the denomination. Because of what we, it's not, we're not saying we have to think about this for no reason. We have to think about this because in recent times, especially since this episode was filmed, like after the attacks in churches were racially motivated. So I think the scene could definitely not have happened in this way exactly now. Yes. And I I actually really like that there is a diverse congregation, especially in a small town. The the detail of the casting of that and, and everything is really good, but we still have to think about it. And then here's the other thing we have to think about on this te- on this theme. As if the gun violence and immediately shooting Father Braid was not difficult enough, Mac then takes off his vest and reveals that he also has a bomb. 
And that dives into a whole other heavy theme if we think about things like... um, Any sort of suicide bombing that's going on in the world for any reason. Yes. Honestly, the stakes are high enough. Mac has a gun and is not afraid to use it. So bringing a bomb in as well, I dare I say, I wrote that it feels overwritten. It's just, it's so many bad things. And we could have that amount of tension and climax with way less things. We could have that amount of tension and climax if he's up there without any weapons, but throwing chairs and screaming. Like, it, it's a lot. I, I agree. I think it reads a lot more dangerous to us now with this sure. state of existence. But I definitely see what you're saying. I think that the technical difference for writers when it comes to bomb versus gun is gun is solved by tackle person, get gun to go away. And then you calculate risk as in if he shoots, is it likely to hit a person? Is it going to go off in the ceiling kind of thing? Like... Is it really such a bad thing if I tackle him and it goes off as long as I'm reasonably sure that it will go off in a direction when no one gets hurt? Tackling someone in a bomb vest is trickier and scarier and not as easy to solve. So I don't think it was about raising the stakes. I think it was about complicating the rescue for Micah and Pete to accomplish. Well, because this is what happens. The rescue, we've identified the artifact. We have our dramatic climax. And yet we still have a couple of false resolutions. So to move forward, eh, the, the thing that, you know happens next is that he calls Micah bossy yeah Pete and Micah and so again this is harder for us in today's time to talk about but there is comic relief intercut with the extremely violent situation so they are still bickering Micah is still you know prone to punching Pete in the face and that's where they make the plan that Pete needs to go douse the artifact And Micah is going to stay and continue to deal with the violent situation. So Pete goes into Father Braid's office. And let me say, I don't think that the comic relief works as well in today's gun violence America. But I live for the (laughs) shot of slow-mo Pete in sunglasses with like a carafe, like a thermos, like a big metal. It's the thing that we saw Artie use to put the the Aztec artifact in. Yeah. That like big tube. <laughs> it looks to me like a like a caterer would bring that full of coffee. Yeah. And so I it's funny that it's like what I picture a catering company carrying coffee in and they throw in slow motion towards the camera cheesily (laughs) the purple goo which which covers the chair then he rushes back into the chapel to say I did it I did it and again it's supposed to be funny that then he he's wrong and gets shot at and he's like never mind I'll go never Uh, mind I'll (laughs) go back it worked it worked in the time I was able to separate myself from now and remember that this show is now in itself an artifact of a prior time. And so I'm just appreciating it on that basis while acknowledging this isn't the kind of thing that you can get away with now. But viewing it on its own terms, it worked very well. And also, it wasn't their usual snappy dialogue because honestly, they don't have time and the the stakes are too high. So Mm -hmm. 
that all makes sense but they do have a funny exchange which <laughs> he runs and he's like i did it i did it and she just it's so clear he did it. he just she just goes go do the chair and he goes i'm gonna do the chair and they just go but like with exactly equally matched levels of anger and frustration yeah so pete goes and gets the fire axe which is very very smart problem solving because he needs to bust open the chair to to neutralize the actual artifact well micah de-escalates a little bit and ultimately when it's not working offers herself in exchange for the innocent people in the church I know. and she's it is me i'm the one and i'm not a psychologist or a law enforcement person but from my knowledge of documentaries and things sometimes what you need to do is play into the offender's delusion at least as long as it takes to reach safety so what she does is she says yep you want me you don't want these people they're your people they're your community and it actually seems like it's working it throws him off his game long enough yeah it 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 saves enough time for pete to start axing the chair eventually but in this moment uh before he finishes and comes back out mac ultimately decides to press the button on his bomb so here's my critique that is going to be very light compared to the heavy themes all right the writers have committed to a bomb i don't like it but i have to roll with it for this podcast (laughs) the problem beyond all of the 2019 issues is that when they zoom in on the bomb there is clearly a stop button on it i do acknowledge that it could be a homemade bomb and using things like an egg timer or that to me is literally like the same timer at my university for when you're giving a presentation so it may be (laughs) especially funny to me because like we have those in the front of like our grad classrooms but It makes it frustrating to me that even though if I think, yeah, I watched the documentary on the Unabomber and so I kind of know a few things about pipe bombs. If if I if I don't do all of this mental work about things I know about true crime, what happens is that it just gets frustrating that there is no way to disengage the bomb by clicking stop or cutting a wire or taking it off. And again, We don't know where Mac got the bomb. I do believe that as a law enforcement officer, he may have the ability to make a bomb or get a bomb. Um, It's not beyond belief to me, but what is questionable is that neither the guy who owns and wears the bomb and possibly made the bomb, nor two heavily accomplished Secret Service agents can stop the bomb without blowing it up my response to that i mean i definitely understand your critique first of all i validate that my response to it would be they may know how but they may not know how within 30 seconds um it may not be properly connected to the start stop in the same way a remote bomb that you see all the time you just press a button on a phone like any button and it'll explode and also bomb diffusion is its own law enforcement specialty. Yeah. There are bomb specialists. So I don't think every law enforcement officer, even a Secret Service agent, would know. I think they would probably call in a SWAT team or a bomb squad. 
um, they might be able to diffuse something given enough time mm-hmm. if they saw it before it was detonated. But 30 seconds to figure out a complex system of wires is not smart. And But what Micah did is smart, even though she punched him with fists of fury and feminist rage and then tackles him, is also extremely self-sacrificing because I have heard stories of people at war throwing themselves on top of grenades mm-hmm. and the grenade goes off but the body can absorb a lot of impact the bomb is on the outside of him so if it explodes it'll still go outward but if the bomb goes off when she is on top of him she will absorb a huge amount of that impact yes she was putting her life on the line in a major very significant way you're right because i guess micah's solution with limited time is yeah like a a person jumping on a grenade to save their whatever military words uh luckily pete is axing the chair and actually releases a shockwave sort of thing that shows us is it (laughs) okay he releases an orange shockwave i'll double check and let you know but i'm fairly certain that it's orange uh so he gets the acts to a help the purple goo reach the springs and b i think it is possible in some cool science way that he's got a i'm sure metal axe that's what axes are made of right interacting with these magnetized springs and that is also going to help because this this idea of ferromagnetism is pretty volatile so It's going to help to actually finally neutralize the artifact and for a fun fact, completely uh, alter what we've been viewing as the object. So usually they bag something and bring it home. They're not going to bring back a pink chair. They're going to bring back like 12 or however many small springs in a bag, which is cool. So that allows him to rush back into again he didn't have to rush back into danger but he goes to check on Micah he rushes to her right away he sees that they can't uh stop the bomb and they do ask one of them Peter Micah says to Mac can it be diffused and he says no but they take it off and then Pete does the thing that he does which is don't know what to do with the object gonna just take it away just gonna make it go somewhere else now get it away from the people Pete and he heroically rushes the bomb out of the church and we do see a huge explosion I have a lot to say about this but I'll get to it when we return to the warehouse he does survive the explosion It is believable to me in this moment because I know that there are different types of bombs. If this was a shrapnel bomb, he wouldn't survive. If this is like fire or if it's more about the sound and the big explosion, uh, again, we don't know any information about the bomb. So we do actually have information about the bomb. And I have a thought about it. We have the information that it's a 30 second detonation and it is close, which tells me that he didn't have enough time to run to a location, place it down and leave. In my brain, he threw it and it exploded midair. Oh! I have no proof of this. No! But that is what I think happened. See, and so, yes, this is actually a great solution if you, you know, and again, we don't see a lot of it because of budget reasons, but 
I had also thought in the moment that he rushed to like the back room and threw the bomb out the window. I don't, I don't know the layout of the church. It's not important. That's what I had thought. And it's also important that we don't see what happens because of something that does happen Yes. Later. So Micah, again, is immediately thinking of her partner and both of them we see were willing to sacrifice themselves. So they hope the other one is okay. Pete does come back. He's, you know, a little dirtied up, but he's all right. And we know they've saved the day. And then they return to the warehouse. So the scene in the warehouse is funny. It leads us on, uh, because we didn't talk about this earlier, but there is a really tiny subplot that they're borrowing Artie's car. Another budget subplot, we never see the car. I was confused because you can tell in shows a lot of times when there is what I call, quote, cringy product placement, especially. Especially with cars. There will be some later in Warehouse 13. (laughs) That's fine if it's like a recurring thing. Because sometimes you see like, you know, this one sponsor really believes in this show. And then it becomes a joke, which is lovely. But other times, you're just like, why are you talking about the functionality of these things that don't matter? And so they start talking about his navigation system. And I started to get uncomfortable because I was like, it's too early in the series for me to tolerate yeah. this. And then and then I was like, oh, wait, no, this can't be product placement. We didn't see the car. And there's no way that they would have introduced this if they didn't say, yeah, your Ford Focus is so good at its navigation system or whatever. And so just as I was like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't, they talk about how it blew up. And I was like, oh, haha, see what you did there. That was nice. Yeah. So here's the thing is that they do such a good job convincing us especially because we didn't see it it's difficult to survive a bomb exploding really near to you so they say i needed to put it in something contained to contain the blast blah blah which is also funny (laughs) because it's like well i am again not a bomb technician so i'm like i don't know would that actually help and they pull out a cassette player. And the funny thing with that is that they're like, oh, we love the GPS and the custom leather. Oh, and here's the cassette player. I was like, wait, um, all of these things coexist in the same car? <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, yeah. I'm, my parents had a cassette player for such a long time in their car. It's It takes a long time to phase out old technology. True. And sometimes new technology coexists on top of it. Um, okay, they lead us on for a good while believing that they exploded Artie's car, which I actually would have loved if it was true. And then they like laugh and high five. And then this has sort of resolved their dispute where they found out that Artie had pitted them against each other. And in retaliation, they kind of pranked him, which I like that they are sort of playfully mad at Artie for what he did. But I don't think it's serious enough per our earlier discussion, Jill, of the gender disparity thing that this is just a prank and then it's fine. Yeah, I think it was great. I loved the whole dynamic. I think he deserved to be messed with a little. And I think he also needs to be messed with a a little, not because of misogyny or anything like that, but because, you know, when you have that kind of workplace, you prank each other a little bit. It's, It's fun. 
I'm not a huge fan of practical jokes, but these are people who live in high stakes situations and so would not be as easily affected by them as someone Mm -hmm. as emotionally (laughs) charged as I am. But yeah, I think that within reason, this is what having friends is. Yes. And Artie needs to remember that dynamic. And also I loved it because the show now began and ended with beautiful off-screen storytelling. Because we didn't see them have that conversation, we can assume that they had a longer conversation than would fit on screen. You mean because we didn't see Pete and Micah plan to prank Artie? Plan to prank Artie and get to the root of why they did what they did and like figuring out that he had told them both the same thing. That means things aren't just magically resolved because they both saved the day. There was a conversation that occurred later and we can assume based on context, he was like, hey, sorry if I verge on this massage anything a little too much. And she's like, I'll try to like have a bit more fun and not put so much of my stress on you. I know we're partners. Like we can assume that all happened because they're in such a good place now and they don't seem to be carrying any of that. Yes. So it's a good resolution. And then there's just one little smidge of enticement for next time, which is that Artie finally gets a little more information from his hacker foe. <laughs> Artie pulls open the thing. It's an electrical grid, a high voltage electrical grid. Thank you. And the hacker has hacked in and left the message, knock, knock. And it's really dramatically done and I like it. I'm excited. I was scared. Like I got scared feelings from it. It wasn't just film language that made me scared. It wasn't like we're zooming in on this Hitchcockian angle and so we feel this way because we know we always feel Mm -hmm. this way when we see this angle. It was just this is a thing that has happened and it's saying knock knock which is a pretty threatening thing to say. I think those are often the scariest villains, the ones that have fun. If someone is not having fun while doing an evil thing, there might be a deeper root issue you can address and then diffuse the situation like Micah often does. But knock knock means, hi, I'm here to ruin your life and I'm having a real good time about it. Yeah. So it is exciting. And let me say, please come back for episode four because episode four was the first episode of Warehouse 13 that I ever saw. I happened across it live the night that it aired in 2009 and it hooked me because it has my celebrity crush who I will do an actor spotlight on very heavily featured. So get excited. Thank you agents. We'll see you again next time. Hey, so it is 3 a.m. on Wednesday, the day after this episode was supposed to drop, and I'm really sorry it was late, but we are just two normal humans. I am trying to write a dissertation, and I did my very best, but sometimes life gets in the way. So thanks so much for being patient and for being kind and supportive to us. You guys are really the best, and I super appreciate that you waited patiently for this. So thanks so much. Goodbye.